Tonight, the silver anniversary of the Peach Bowl provides the setting for two college programs whose resurgence has their fans excited about 1993. It is very noisy. It is also very full. You're looking at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, number 24, the Bulldogs of Mississippi State in town to take on North Carolina in this, the 25th birthday party for the fine folks here in Atlanta who put together the Peach Bowl. Welcome to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com, the independent voice of UNC sports. Brought to you by JohnnyTShirt.com, the go-to provider for all your Tar Heel gear. Good evening, everybody. Welcome once again. What is good? You are back with us on InsideCarolina.com. Inside Carolina, specifically the Throwback Podcast, Episode 9. It has been a heck of a, a back and forth of some of the games that we've talked about. We try to go basketball, football, basketball, football. And specifically, we're going to hit you back-to-back with two different games from both sports in 1993. Having heard the last episode, we just got done talking about uh, the basketball team and Dean Smith against uh, Florida State in 93. Well, this game was a little before that on the calendar. This game was the Peach Bowl in 1993, but was actually the bowl game for the 92 season. So if you're trying to do any research on it, you're going to get a little you know, confounded the way I did because it was the first time, I believe, in history that uh, the Peach Bowl had had the game after the new year. And even as we sit today in 2020, the game is, is before the, the calendar turns over. So it's a little confusing, but this was on, uh, this was on January the 2nd, 1993. As we get rolling, as always, I want to tell you guys, thank you for listening. If you're now checking us out on YouTube, thank you for watching. Uh, I know that I have a face made for radio, but I appreciate you tuned in anyway. Uh, if you get a chance, and it would mean so much to myself, my colleagues hosting other podcasts, the contributors for Inside Carolina as well, if you guys could stop, go to wherever it is that you get your podcasts, rate and review us. Specifically, if you have good things to say, that helps bump us up to the top of uh, iTunes and Google Play's algorithms so that we're easily, more easily found and then more people can hear about what we're putting out. But on the same time, if you don't like what we're doing, hey, give us a shout, right? Shoot us an email, shoot a message to Buck or Tommy or Ben or anybody via the Inside Carolina message boards. Uh, just let us know what you don't like because we obviously don't want to keep doing something that's not making you all as subscribers and listeners and what now watchers. We don't want to do it if it's not making you happy and not meeting your needs, so to speak. Uh, while we're getting some business out of the way, I also want to give a big shout out. You know how this goes. Johnny T-Shirt and JohnnyT-Shirt.com. Right on Franklin Street, they're a staple of Chapel Hill. They're a big part of this community. Uh, they're a big part of the Inside Carolina community. They support us. They support the content that we're putting out. They support this podcast. They support other podcasts. They're so all in on the work that we do, and we want you guys to be all in in your consumer habits when you're picking up Carolina gear, paraphernalia, swag, whatever you want to call it. If you're looking for that stuff, you need to look at johnnytshirt.com, period, end of sentence. Know that they have great shipping, they're quick on it, it's reasonable, and they have just about anything you could think of or would want to look for. So johnnytshirt.com, if you're an Inside Carolina Premium subscriber, use the code, get your extra 10% off of their already just smack down amazing prices. Go hit up Johnny T-Shirt and, you know, Show them some love for, for helping us do what we do to deliver this stuff for you guys. Now, 
let's get to why we're all here tonight, today, this morning. Solstice, when and wherever you're taking in this show. Uh, I want to tee up the game a little bit, and then I'll bring in our, our, our guests for this evening. As I mentioned, January 2nd, 1993, the end of the 92 season, Peach Bowl. This is before Chick-fil-A was involved when the logo was still just a peach and some script. Uh, eight and three, Carolina was coming in ranked number 19 in the AP poll, playing against an SEC foe, uh, Jackie Sherrill's Mississippi State Bulldogs. They were seven and four, uh, 24 in the AP poll. Uh, the crowd was actually really nice. It was 69,125 were, were listed which at the time was a Peach Bowl uh, attendance record and a Georgia Dome attendance record. And I got to admit, when I was watching this throwback, I had no idea the Georgia Dome was this old. Uh, maybe that says that I'm getting old and I'm developing some issues and not remembering things properly, but I did not remember the Georgia Dome being this old, especially being around in, in the beginning of 1993. But a uh, great crowd for the game. Uh, UNC was coming in led by Mike Thomas, who was just a freakish athlete. Uh, baseball player, you know, played punter and, and quarterback for the football team. Just an absolute all-around uh, Johnny All-American type athlete. Had Natron Means in the, back, in the backfield. Uh, had almost all of the current UNC athletic department was on this roster. <laughs> so, you know, you'll see guys like uh, Tommy Thigpen or Rick Steinbacher, um, Corey Holiday, some other guys that were just, you know, some of the great, uh, cornerstone players that really started the first Mac Brown era, or as, as Buck and I like to call it, Mac Brown 1.0. Um, and UNC was, had become ranked around Halloween after they had beaten and also ranked Georgia Tech team. So this is a team that was kind of coming into its own. Again, they finished with, a, you know, with an 8-3 record coming into this game. Uh, and then obviously they would you know, go on to win this game, but I don't want to spoil the whole how it happened. But with all that aside, now that I've kind of given you guys a little bit of context and let you know what things kind of looked like and what led up to this, this, amazing, uh, this amazing game. I want to bring in our two, uh, our two panelists for the evening, uh, my guests, and I'm glad they're here, and I appreciate them being here. Uh, the first one is 3E, Trey Edge, former UNC football player. Folks, he's not just a former Carolina football player. He's a legacy. His dad was the quarterback on the 63 team with uh, – how was it? Ken Willard was, was the star on that team, if, if my history is right. Um, Got it. He's now the sports play-by-play guy for WFNC in Fayetteville. What's up, Crib? Um, and he's just—he's just like you know most of us in the sense of this that he just—he he loves talking about Carolina football. Has a great insight again, having been a former player uh, for Coach Brown, and now with his his experience in the play-by-play field. Um, and also with us tonight is is Buck Sanders, El Patron. You guys know him from the. Buck stops here daily uh, segment that shows up on the Inside Carolina Football Premium Message Boards. Uh, Buck is basically the lifeblood of this organization, so we're happy to have him here with us tonight. And and I'm going to just kind of sit back and let you guys drive this. But first things first, I always throw it out this way, and I'll start with Trey since since this is his first time on the on the show. Trey, what was your memory of this game before we went back and rewatched it? It's funny. I, I... When I got the invite to look at it and to watch it, I tried to think about exactly that. I said, what do I remember about the game? Because I had been out of school for two years, so it was fresh then when I graduated. Certainly not fresh now. And what obviously came to my mind was Bracey Walker, and we'll get to what happened, what he did in that game, because, number one, he was a Fayetteville native. 
So that was something I remembered and his impact on that game. Another thing that, that stuck out to me was the beginning. It was not the beginning of the Mac Brown era, but it was the springboard for the Mac Brown era because of what came after this bowl game. That's what I remember. Going back and watching it, some of the details you certainly don't remember. You remember big plays, but you don't remember some of the minute stuff. But those are the two big things. There's a specific player in Bracey Walker. And then I re just remember thinking, having been in that locker room with Coach Brown and knowing what he had put into this five-year plan, that that day, that night, watching the Peach Bowl, watching that win, realizing what it meant not just to him but to the program, that's what I remembered about that time. Nail on the head, I think. <laughs> and I'm not going to steal his thunder, but I do want to make sure we note that when, when we were first talking about the concept of this podcast, one of the things that Buck said was that this was an important game. And, and Buck, I'll, I'll let you take it from here, but if I remember correctly, your, your words to me were this was the what cemented, like Trey said, this cemented Mac Brown 1.0 as a viable thing at Carolina. What do you, what do you remember about this game before we rewatched it? Well, I, I would agree with everything that Trey just said and everything that you said, but uh, the thing that I thought about uh, going back and thinking about this game is uh, I, I watched this game before I was, uh, you know, involved in Inside Carolina or reporting on games. So I watched it from a different perspective. I was just a fan. That, that's all I was in those days in 1993. I was a fan like everybody watching this or listening to this podcast. I was just a guy that was obsessed with UNC football, but as a fan. And the thing that I remember about it the most was how absolutely nervous I was watching that game. Yeah. I was on the edge of my seat <laughs> and, uh, you know, as a fan going into, um, you know, initially, you know, when I, I knew they were playing the ball game, it was like, great. They're going to a ball game. They haven't been in five years. It's great to get there. You know, let's just, you know, uh, have a good performance, play well, it'll be okay. But by the time I got to the, you know, the third quarter or so, or the middle of the second quarter, I'm like, hey, we got a chance to win this thing. And then I started getting so hyper and so nervous about the outcome of the game. And it was almost like really rewatching the game. And we'll get to that later. But I remember watching it the first time around it was like the out could, outcome could change on any particular play in the second half that happened you know the, the whole game could turn around on a dime so that's the main thing I remember is how absolutely freaking nervous I was watching that thing I usually like to uh I usually like to kind of start with you know talking to to the guests about feeling out the game but one of the things that you just touched on, Buck, may kind of throw a little bit of a wrench in that. But this game really felt like for Mississippi State to have only been up 14 to nothing at the half after what we saw in the first half, I felt like North Carolina was incredibly fortunate considering that it was only 14 to nothing. With all that said, what do you guys – what jumped out at you about the early flow of the ball game? You know, that, that first drive was efficient. Um, you felt like maybe you saw some some coordinators feeling things out. Buck, I'll go to you first. And on on your rewatch when we did the throwback here, what did what did you notice about the flow of the game? Kind of 
how things were, were getting into to themselves as, as the game started. But, well, I, I think that's true. And I think uh, early on watching it in the flow of the game, I thought North Carolina's defensive line was outmatched. I thought Memphis, uh, Mississippi State's offensive line was just too big and too powerful for the UNC defensive line. And I thought they struggled really hard early uh, trying to get uh, Mississippi State, you know, blocked up on defense. And it, it was really a, something of a chess match going on. And one of the things that did freak me out a little bit is they're running a 3-4 defense, you know, in – 1993. I mean, this doesn't look a lot different than what Jay Bateman's running, right? You know, you got it. You got a, a stand-up guy, uh, uh, outside linebacker, two outside linebackers, really. Uh, one of them being kind of a uh, an edge guy. One of them being more of a rush guy. It looks so familiar. You know, fast forward what uh, 25 years or whatever it is now. Uh, so, you know, that part of it and the, the chess match between Carl Torbush and, lo and behold, Watson Brown, Yep. you know, um, and, and watching those two guys on the, the sideline, Mack and Watson, and uh, how that all played out. But uh, it was fascinating to watch early on. You know, North Carolina had a little success on the ground. And, and again, rewatching it, I'm a fan. I'm like, give the ball to Natron. Hey, <laughs> uh, <laughs> rocket uh, science. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but, uh, you know, also, uh, it was just so fascinating uh, to watch all these guys that, or a good number of them that I've interacted with over the year, over the years. Rick Steinbacher, Corey Holiday. Got introduced to Bucky Brooks one time at a restaurant by his hmm. agent. Um, you know, on and on down the line. Guys said, uh, Bernardo Harris, just a couple of years ago, I watched a football game with him in the poke box. Hmm. Uh, and it was Big fascinating. Uh, and he, yeah, Bernardo's just a great guy. Uh, and he was big time in that football game, too. Absolutely. Way. So, you know, that's another thing that kind of uh, hit me as I was watching the game early. Well, I'm, I'm going to come to, to Trey with the same question, but the fact that you mentioned, you mentioned uh, Watson Brown, I would be remiss if I didn't say a little bit of trivia about Watson Brown. He's the first coach in NCAA history to lose 200 games in his career, um, huh. <laughs> which is, sounds rather dubious. One. Yeah, sounds rather <laughs> dubious, but then you also got to realize – you've been around a long time if you've lost 200 games. Like, so you've had, right. you, you've had your impact on college football. Uh, Trey, I'll ask you the same thing. You know, as this game was kind of developing a flow, bucking on a couple of things I think were key. Anything that jumps out at you or that you feel like was, was just really grabbing your attention when we went back and rewatched this? It was interesting, and I did notice I had forgotten the Mac Brown-Watson-Brown connection until you go back and you watch this and you see them. You think about two legendary coaches, Mac Brown, Jackie Sherrill, you know, a lot of people don't think back to Jackie Sherrill in 1993 and thinking about Mississippi State. But, you know, it was so heavily dominated, I felt like, early by Mississippi State. They score on their first drive on a touchdown pass. And one of the things that, that shocked me is you don't 
associate Mississippi State necessarily with an, an air raid type, type offense. Now, you know, it was 1993. Right. We didn't have five wides and one back and all that kind of stuff. But they did an interview, and before the game, the announcer said that they planned on throwing the ball 40 times. Mm -hmm. That caught my ear. When I was thinking what is about this Mississippi, nonsense? It, I know. Well, it was 1993. And you're thinking about Mississippi State, and that just did not sink to me. I had a much different picture going in of what I expected to see. And then you start watching the game. And on the offensive side of the ball, what I found fascinating was they certainly came out throwing the football. Mm -hmm. Quarterback Greg Plump, I believe his name was, yep. at one point was 10 of 11 with a touchdown pass. I mean, he was hot. A lot of that had to do with we weren't getting much pressure, and that would change later. But what I found fascinating was the formation. It's 1993. Most everything is eye formation. Yep. And both teams lined up in the eye. But they ran option out of it. Yep. We ran option out of it with Mike Thomas. But Mississippi State ran option out of it. A lot of play action throwing the football. So it's, it's different. You think old school option, you think Wishma. You think right. things like that, Oklahoma. You think Air Force, all these different schools. It was an interesting take on what football used to be. Eye formation, we're going to throw it, but we're going to run a lot of option with a mobile quarterback. They, you know, Plum came out. They took him out the second series and put in a young quarterback who really was only there to run the football. I didn't and understand that. Plum, I didn't either, and, and it caught me off guard. I thought he was hurt. But first drive they score, Carolina can't really do anything. Mississippi State scores. They get out of this lead, and I guess we'll talk about some particulars about what happened and penalties and everything else. But early to me, I, I'm like Buck. I was I was worried. Even re I'm not gonna lie to you. Even rewatching it, <laughs> you're watching it as a fan, and you're sitting there going, "Good gracious! I mean, how in the world did we do this?" You said fortunately to be down 14 to nothing at halftime, but Mississippi State was hitting. Buck hit on the defensive pressure, Bernardo Harris in particular. That changed later in the game. And as mm -hmm. we look, it had such a big impact on turnovers and what happened in the second half. But early, I think Mississippi State was doing what they wanted to do. And, in fact, Mac Brown at halftime said that that first half was not the 8-3 and three Tar Heels. And we would see things change soon. I think that's, that's incredibly accurate. When they were – I remember early in the game, that first drive was – and I still feel like even later in the game, as, you know, Carolina would come in and take the lead, uh, I still feel like running that play action out of the eye and then throwing the 15-yard the out route to the, to the weak side of the field. If they ran that once, I feel like they ran it 10 times, and I feel like it was there every single time. And it was – to your point, Trey, I love that, I love that you brought that up. It was it was the modernization of the old traditional I formation. You know, again, using what we would see in the late '90s with with Eric Crouch and some of the other um, a little more athletic quarterbacks getting outside of the pocket and running a different style of option than the old grinded out veer, yep. you know, wing T that type of stuff. Um, Buck, major events of, of the first half. I mean, obviously, fourteen to nothing. Tar Heels go down. What else do you remember, like major events of the first half? Or I guess you know we could we could shelve the first half if you'd like, since it was since it was very blah from an offensive standpoint. But Buck, what were your your major events that jumped out at you in the first half? 
Well, I, I think there are two things that jumped out to me is one, uh, very unusual. Mac Brown came out first play of the game to Stephen Jerry, uh, for the, you know, the, uh, reverse throw, whatever, uh, wide receiver throw. And, you know, like he was trying to make a statement right off the bat, you know, we're, we're going to be, we're going to be different. We're not going to be the same. Uh, be prepared for anything we might throw at you. And I think that was to sort of try to loosen them up for nature on means, maybe make them a little bit more susceptible to, uh, uh, play action pass after they got natural means going. Uh, that's the one thing that jump, jumped out is very first play of the game, Mac Brown is trying to make a statement offensively. Look for a reverse pass right off the bat here, Ron, with Stephen Jerry in the game. Yep, and that's what they're looking for. Jerry with the pass and almost intercepted. The man that he wanted was Corey Holiday, but it was Walt Harris who almost made the pickoff. Well, Stephen Jerry's a former quarterback. Almost just didn't get enough under the ball there. Good way to start him. The second thing that uh, jumped off the page to me is that uh, Marcus Wall very nearly blocked a punt in that first half. And special teams were going to play such a big part the remainder of that game that Marcus Wall, I mean, he came within an eyelash of blocking a punt in that first half. And, you know, I think that may have set the tone. And if we wanted to try to explain how North Carolina won this game, eventually special teams, that's how they won it. If you look at the stats, no way North Carolina wins this game uh, on yardage, first downs, all that stuff. Um, you know, I don't know if you've got the box score, Joey, but I do. Um, and I've got everything but the box score, but go ahead. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So, uh, well, it's, it's a truncated, uh, box score, but, um, Mississippi state had 440 yards. It felt about right to North Carolina's 255. They had 24 first towns to North Carolina's 13. Um, Marcus Jones was 7 of 16. Uh, two interceptions for 106 yards. And Plump, you know, the before the game, Trey was mentioning that the guy said they were going to try to throw it 40 yards. Plump was 24 of 40. Yeah. Two interceptions, 287 yards, and a TD. They threw it 40 times on the dot. Wow, that's, exactly. that's some good analysis by y'all. Well played. Uh, so, uh, And we didn't talk beforehand. <laughs> right. But the, 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 the point of that being is that with those numbers uh, in the box score and, and possession time, they had it 34 minutes. North Carolina had it 25. Mm-hmm. Um, no way North Carolina wins this game except – for special teams and especially for the punt block team. And I think you saw a precursor of that in the first half with Marcus Wall almost getting one early. Well, North Carolina really confuses Mississippi State on this punt block attempt. 
what they were able to do is they move a man in real late from the right side. Then they get a bad snap. Almost should have had this block. Now, I don't know if he Marcus hit Wall. the ball or not. Marcus Wall, the freshman. I love you giving some shine to Marcus Wall, mainly because he went to my high school, but also because showing what Marcus Wall did on that first punt is, is I think he did find the flaw that Carolina's special teams then used the rest of the game to find those two touchdowns that you were talking about to make up that huge box score and time of possession discrepancy. Trey, what did it feel like to you after we originally saw the game settle in? You know, we talked about, uh, we talked about, Carolina going down 14 to nothing or Mississippi State going up 14 to nothing, depending on which side of the coin you're on. When did you feel like that North Carolina finally started settling in, regardless of what the score was? You know, honestly, I don't think it was until we came out of halftime. I mean, I think we showed glimpses, but if you look back at that first half and we talk about 14 to nothing being the score, yep. if you haven't watched the game, and we fortunately just did, one of the things that I did forget is that Mississippi State had two touchdowns in the first half called back two touchdown passes. The second one was a little questionable whether or not Orlando Truitt, who was right. a really good wide receiver, maintained possession or not. The first one was an 82-yard touchdown pass. Both of those were called back on offensive holding calls. You look at the 14 to nothing score, that could have been 28 to nothing and probably game over the way we were playing offense at the time. The other note before I get to when I think it did change, Buck brought up Marcus Wall. By the way, Joe, you'll love this. I talked to Marcus two days ago. <laughs> I've got to give him a shout-out to you. I talked to Coach Brown about this game not long ago. And when he talked about it, he said, yeah, it was great. We had three blocked punts. Well, then we, I was watching the game, just like you guys were, and I was like, wait a minute. I only remember two blocked punts. But if you go back and watch the highlight there in the first half, the announcers say they think Marcus Wall got his hands on the ball. Ron Franklin was adamant question. about it. Yeah, so if you talk to Coach Brown about it, it was three block punch. <laughs> it wasn't two. It was three. But as far as when things changed, it's 14 to nothing going into halftime. I, 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 you're certainly in the game. I didn't see a lot of – offensive fireworks from us. we got to remember Mike Thomas was a freshman, a redshirt freshman quarterback. Mm -hmm. He and Jason Stanizak had played a lot, both of them, during the year. In fact, Stanizak had attempted and completed more passes than Thomas. Thomas went the whole way. But, again, to me, he didn't look comfortable in that mm -hmm. first half. Buck mentioned the 3-4 defense. He looked very uncomfortable. He did it, wound up having two interceptions. So I wasn't sure. I think in the first half I wrote it down, he was 6 of 13 for under 50 yards. Like, yeah, 57 yards or something stupid. Yeah, yeah. And, a, and an interception. So that was concerning. And the question was, what would we do coming out of the locker room? Would we go to Stanisak? What would we do? And I guess we'll get to the second half in a minute. But to me, it did not turn. This game did not turn until we came out of the locker room. We had the ball first. But what was noticeable was the sideline. Everything was completely different from the first 15-yard Natron means run. Everybody was amped. Everybody was jacked. You could see the towels waving, and everything changed from there. Means, big opening. 5, 10, 15. Ryan 
Brown, if you look at the sideline now, North Carolina players with the towels in their hands. Mac Brown got a message across to him. Now, whether they're going to be successful or not, I don't know. But I know this. They're a little bit more excited on that sideline. Natron Means, number 20. Good block by the fullback, Mike Falkerson, number 34. Again, look at the yardage he gets after he gets hit. Winds up actually with 17 on the carry. At 60 yards in the first half. Yeah, it, it really is nice to have, you know, such a nimble, small truck as Natron Means in your backfield, <laughs> knowing that he's capable of, of breaking one at any point in time. And, and, and kind of going back to something that you just hit on about uh, Mike Thomas's discomfort in the pocket, or at least when, you know, at least when he was surveying a defense. Uh, Buck, when you were mentioning earlier about Jay Bateman's current a kind of amoeba style where he moves guys around uh, from the front or may drop a guy back in coverage that you wouldn't expect, Mississippi State had a guy named Juan Long, number 40. That rewatching this game, I swear there was four of him because he was in on what seemed like every defensive play for Jackie Sherrill's team. Uh, so I, I love that both of you guys made a note of that. All right, so halftime gets by. As we talked about, you can, you can say Carolina was lucky to have only been down by 14. Uh, they come out second half, things totally change. This is where it starts getting good, especially for Carolina fans. Uh, Trey, I'll go to you first. Timeless highlights from the second half or things that jump just really grabs you off the screen or things you, you know, you give you the little fist pump or as somebody who played for Mac Brown, things that you saw and you're like, this is, is what we were setting up for the whole time. Obviously, we come out and we score, which you won't. But the highlight of that drive and what jumped off the screen to me and another thing that you forget when you think about the game because you think about Mike Thomas, the quarterback, struggling through the air. Mm -hmm. But in that opening drive of the second half, they had run Natro Means twice. I think it was like 17 and 10 yards or something like that. Then they play action to him, and Thomas went deep to Bucky Brooks, who made a fantastic catch and carried it all the way down to the one-yard line. Play action to Means. He's going to go on top, but he's got a man wide open. Caught at the five, down at the one, Bucky Brooks. Fifty-four yards. Well, you know who you have to give credit to for this play, Natron Means, because he had success on first down, and now all of a sudden he gets Mississippi State defensive backs peeking a little bit into the backfield you get a good fake by mike thomas now he sets up and throws the football good concentration here by bucky brooks because there were hands in his face kelvin knight almost deflected that football well then natron goes in and scores and we're in within a touchdown but that drive was so huge because the next thing that happens our defense comes out on the field and they look completely different all of a sudden our defensive front is getting penetration, getting after the quarterback, making Plum uncomfortable. And that would continue the entire second half. So what happens? They force a punt, and there we go. Bracey Walker blocks the punt. I think one of the interesting things to remember is we remember the blocked punts. I didn't necessarily remember what happened right after that. We blocked the punt, but we didn't cash in on it. Right. So it's still 14-7. And Carolina, you know, gets the ball back, misses – we missed a field goal after that block mm -hmm. punt is what we did. Trip and yet he missed one. Miss, yeah, miss, Mississippi State gets the ball back. Next possession, and it's so rare to see this. And you ask about what sticks out 
what jumps out at you. One block punt by one guy is one thing. But the very next time <laughs> Mississippi State has the ball, it's another block punt by that same guy, Bracey Walker. But this time, he blocks the punt, picks it up, goes 30 yards for the touchdown. All of a sudden, we've got a 14-14 ball game. Now, Mississippi State very quickly getting on the field with the special teams. They're not going to give North Carolina time to line up and have an opportunity to block. In fact, North Carolina still has their back turned to the field. Look, they're still getting set. Men, watch the wide men to the left, how they'll try to cheat in. They've got it again. They got it again. Gracie Walker again, and this time he'll score. And we can get into how this game played out, but when you ask what jumped out, and I specifically, I, I, I've circled your term highlight, because I'll tell you one that was not a play, but it happened after a play later in the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bracey had the two block punts. Yeah, he returned one for a touchdown. But later on, Cliff Baskerville had a 45-yard interception return for touchdown. Bracey Walker made the hit that freed that ball. The Baskerville took all the way. And the camera's on Bracey Walker after the touchdown. And in the middle of the field, he's standing and just jumps up and does a standing backflip. I can't relate. No, no, I said, well, that's, and when you asked what a highlight was, I went, well, that's not a game highlight, but that one sticks out. That certainly counts. Uh, that certainly counts. And, you know, the point about Bracey Walker's play in this game, when our viewers and listeners will go back and see that, not only does he block two, two punts, not only does he take one to the house, he blocks two punts from two totally different parts of the formation, which either speaks to him really studying game tape or just Mississippi State not having a special teams coach or wanting nothing to do with him. But what, what do you think in the second half? Do you think it was more that North Carolina got aggressive with their defense? Do you think it was that Carl Torbush really started recognizing where his opportunities to attack were? Do you think it was, you know, do you think it was Mississippi State just kind of taking their feet off the gas? What do you think was the big change in the second half, maybe aside from the two Bracey Walker big plays? That's a good question. I, I would have loved to have been in the locker room and heard the, the locker room, you know, halftime speech and what was said because, as uh, Trey mentioned, you know, even before there was the kickoff to start the second half, the guys on the sideline were already fired up. I mean, fired they up. were fired up. They were swinging those towels. Uh, you know, they were, just, they were all about it. And it looked like a completely different team. Nobody's hanging their heads. They're gonna, you know, they're gonna get after it from the jump. So I'd love to have heard that halftime speech. But one other thing I did notice uh, in the first half, uh, defensively, they played a lot of guys. They sure. played an awful lot of guys. Uh, aside from the starters, uh, you know, they played uh, Michael Payne and Marcus Jones. Uh, at defensive tackle. They played uh, Eric Thomas and Thomas Smith at cornerback. They played uh, Kerry Mock and Mike Morton at linebacker. They played uh, Greg Black at uh, defensive tackle. And uh, Jonathan Perry got hurt yep. in the first half. And, and didn't come back. And didn't come back. He tore ACL, as I'm, uh, if I'm remembering. Yeah, that's right. And then Ray Jacobs comes in and has a heck of a game, has a heck of a game. Yeah. Um, 
so I think, you know, at that point, you're talking, uh, you know, Trey talking about Max five year plan, he was beginning to build some depth. Sure. On that team, playable depth. You know, uh, uh, I mentioned three different defensive tackles, two different cornerbacks, or three different, three different line, three different linebackers, and two different cornerbacks that played in that first half, in addition to the starters. And um, you know, the one thing that Trey didn't mention about uh, Bracey Walker, which I thought was, you know, a highlight for me in the second half is that after he used his helmet to pop that ball out from that uh, receiver and Rondell or Baskerville comes down with it and takes it to the house, who is his lead blocker on that play? Bracey Walker is running downfield and leading the train getting uh, Baskerville in the end zone. And uh, I also remember at the start of the game when they were going over the starting lineups, and they were going over to secondary, you know, they always highlight one guy from the position mm-hmm. group and say, keep your eye on this guy. The guy that they mentioned was Rondell Jones. And Bracey Walker didn't begin the year as a starter. He was second team mm-hmm. when that year began. So he came out of nowhere um, in a lot of ways. But uh, in that bowl game, you know, he – I guess we'll get around to who's this guy – you know, later on, I think we'll probably be unanimous on that. But, um, you know, those are the things that jumped out to me about the, the second half. Pass is drilled and intercepted on the pick. That's Baskerville. Baskerville started as a true freshman. He's never had a bigger one than that right there, though. Your player that you like so well in this ball game, Bracey Walker, really made this play of number 27. Extra point attempt is up, and he's good. Mike, one more look at this. Uh, this is a good pass. I thought he just got it knocked away from it. I thought he threw it a little bit too late. He had good pressure, number 24, Bernardo Harris is going to put pressure on. But now watch Bracey Walker with that hit. He springs it right open, and then Cliff Baskerville with the interception and the touchdown. So he put it there. And with the... the... Oh, it was right on the money, but I think what... Bracey Walker just makes the play. Watch Bracey Walker come up with a hit. Bang! He hits, puts his helmet right on the football. Now Cliff Baskerville with the one-hand catch. Chris Jones... Let's the ball get away, and now some good blocking by North Carolina. Yeah, that's a that's a great eye picking out you know, who's leading the convoy because I remember seeing it, but I had, I didn't make that in my notes. Um, specifically, I think there was that sequence in the after the, I think the second block punt. Uh, it's right about well, I don't know maybe it was about the maybe it was the first one, but it was about the twelve minute uh, mark of the third quarter. Mississippi State's offense looks frustrated. You had seen. Uh, Carolina bring pressure from some different places. They had a Bernardo Harris blitz that was perfectly timed um, where, I mean, he didn't quite anticipate the snap count, but he, he got there quick enough that he could have. Uh, UNC, I'm sorry, Mississippi State gets called for a holding penalty. Carolina takes the penalty and backs them up, which to me, that shows some confidence. That's, that's kind of flexing a little bit. 
And then they ended up blocking the punt. And then after the punt was blocked, Mississippi State's just really rattled. I mean, they're, they're getting in guys' faces. It's just that I think at that point they were totally discombobulated. And, and I think that it's, that, was, that was one of the things where, like you guys were saying, see a different guy step up. That's the point where I think that you kind of started to see what was a, a little shaken or maybe not solidified UNC team in the first half really start kind of gelling together and making big things happen. And you know what, Joey, Joey, real quick, one yeah. of the thing I was thinking about, you know, the score's 14-14, and we look at what happened from then on in the interception and how Carolina hung on, and we'll talk about that. But there was also a key moment in that third quarter after we blocked the punt, after Bracey blocked it and scored, we held Mississippi State again, and they punted. Mm-hmm. And a ball hit, we talked about Marcus Wall, ball bounced as he was the punt returner, and hit him. So Mississippi State recovered a fumble, and they had first and 10 on Carolina's 15-yard line. Yep. And the next three plays, Tommy Thigpen had, I think, a tackle for loss, then they got like a five-yard run, and then Rick Steinbacher had a sack. Huge. And they forced, yeah, and they had a, they forced a 37-yard field goal attempt by Mississippi State, which they missed. So the score is still 14-14 in the third quarter. We've talked about two touchdowns called back, you know, points that they didn't get on the board. And all of a sudden, at a moment when it's 14-14 and Mississippi State has a golden opportunity, first and 10 inside the red zone, and come out, come away with it with nothing, the defense at that point just was completely different yeah. than anything we saw in the first half. Third down. gets him at the 20-yard line. That, that is a coverage sack, though. The offensive line had done a good enough job. He looked, pumped, looked again, and that's when he was taken down, the second sack. Well, you have to credit Carl Torbush, the defensive coordinator, because they're disguising, they're confusing Greg Plump and getting a little bit more of a rush than they had in the first half. Gardner to attempt the field goal. They're going to place it down at the 26th. Close to the 27. Plenty of distance with his leg, and he missed it. All of a sudden, the special team for Mississippi State have cost them in this second half. We'll be right back. As former North Carolina linebacker and coach would, John Bunning would say, for Mississippi State, that was a giant M.O. It was a big missed opportunity for the just chances yeah. for them to put points on the board and largely affected what would be the outcome of the game. All right, Buck, you teased it. You mentioned, you know, our this guy portion of the show. Who was your this guy of this particular game? Well, you know, there were a lot of, uh, lot of great individual play. Bernardo Harris, we've mentioned. Natron Means, certainly. Uh, you know, the catch by Bookie Brooks was – yeah. was huge. Um, so, but you got to give it to Bracey. I mean, uh, you know, blocks punt, boxes, second punt, uh, leads a guy in, uh, you know, causes the interception, leads a guy in uh-huh. for a touchdown. 
uh, it was a Bracey Walker show. And, uh, you know, I, I remember back in the day when I was watching the, the Sunday morning UNC football show and uh-huh. uh, Mac Brown's talking about the game and this, that, and the other. It wasn't about this particular game, but he was just talking about defense and, um, you know, coaching his team. And, um, you know, he was talking to some of the guys on the defense and they're like, okay, well, what can we do to get better? What can we do to get better? And Brown said, hit like Bracey Walker does. And, you know, that guy was like 5'11 and, and, you know, in cleats and 185 pounds. And I went to games in Keenan where I was sitting in the upper deck, you know, the second deck. And when Bracey hit somebody, you could hear it up there. You know, it, he would hit people so hard <laughs> that, uh, you know, and – I think actually, you know, we hear sometimes uh, people say that uh, Dre Bly was the beginning of the Rude Boys. Mm-hmm. Actually, it was Bracy Walker and Jimmy Hitchcock the next yeah. year. I think uh, that's fair. Uh, well, uh, that's actually when they started calling themselves the Rude Boys. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, that, that, that's my reading of the history of it, uh, that it was Bracy and Jimmy Hitchcock. That, that kind of started the, you know, the uh, calling themselves and identifying themselves as rude boys. If that's not correct, I suspect I'll hear about it, but uh, that, that's my reading of the history of it. Well, hey, on this show, you have now spoken it into, spoken it into truth, so we will, <laughs> we will consider it to now be part of, if nothing else, the lore of the throwback podcast, that that's when the rude boys actually started. Yeah, it's, um, I heard somebody say one time, God, he hit him so hard that boy got up looking like a dog trying to poop peach seeds. And then that's, that's the kind of power that you would see when Bracey Walker inevitably would hit this, this guy that would lead to the, the Baskerville uh, TD, which would be the, the game winner, as we all know. So Bracey Walker he's, he's has, everywhere. has blocked a kick and scored a touchdown, made a hit that caused a fumble for another touchdown by his teammate. And when you look all over the country, if you're a young football player aspiring to be a football player in grade school or junior high right now he started this season look at this he not only can play football he's a gymnast but he started the football season as the second team player he didn't allow that to hurt him or stop him and now all of a sudden he's a player of the game so far in this football contest all right so buck took the very juicy sandwich that was sitting right there in front of us for for the this guy Trey, you're welcome to go the same route if you have another take on it or if you'd like to mention somebody else. But who was your this guy? So that, that's an obvious choice. And, by the way, Bracey also a, a favorable guy. You mentioned Marcus Wall and Southview. Bracey was a Pine Forest uh, uh-huh. graduate. Got another one on the team now, DJ Jones. I hope he has the same kind of success that Bracey did. And I figured that was the obvious answer. And it is the obvious answer. And I tried yeah. to think, who else could you pick to be – that guy to be the you know to be the face of the game especially if you're a Tar Heel fan and I thought about and I thought about Bernardo Harris on the defensive side of the ball really stuck out to me I thought about you know I thought about even Mike Thomas because you know coach Brown they said it during the broadcast he had a decision to make whether or not to switch quarterbacks yeah he announced he said I will not switch quarterbacks for at least a quarter and a half he didn't believe in doing that 
and he didn't want his quarterback looking over his shoulder, but he stuck with the red shirt freshman. You can make an argument that it's Mike Thomas, and he was a red shirt freshman and led the team to the bowl game. But I think the second easy and obvious answer, if you're not going to pick Bracey Walker, is the face is Mac Brown. Hmm. Because, again, the importance of this, you look at a team that's down 14 to nothing. You look at a program that's come back from back-to-back one in 10 seasons and continued a track yeah. of, of turning into a winning program. He still has a losing record at Carolina at that point because of those first two years. But face of the game, whose influence, whose imprint is on this game? It's the coach. Yes, you've got Bracey Walker. He's the player. He's the star. He's the MVP. But if I'm going to pick a face of it, especially with us being Carolina guys and looking back at that young Mac Brown on the sidelines and his demeanor, even the positive attitude when they're down, how he acted toward the end of the game, the mic's on, and he's just talking calmly to his guys around the field. There's 38 seconds left. They have no timeouts. No timeouts. Yeah, yeah it was just a, a glimpse into what we were going to see and what we're seeing again today. So the face to me was that face because it was what was going to be, at least for a few more years, what we all believed was the future of North Carolina football and are fortunate enough again today to believe that again now. You can hear Coach Brown, 38 seconds, no timeouts. Well, I can't argue with that, and I love the outside-of-the-box thinking. I think that absolutely works, and I, I think it's a great, uh, it is a great tease to link Mac Brown 1.0 to what we're seeing now with the program. Um, if I had to pick somebody, I would have gone with, with Natron Means since, uh, since, uh, since Buck took Bracey, just because, again, I love seeing a guy that was – I know they listed him as like 230 or 235. He's every bit of 250. I mean, he had to have been, and I, and I hope to be able to ask him what his actual playing weight was at this point in his career. But to see him be able to be as nimble as he was and have the explosion that he had uh, that late in the season at that size was just, I mean, it's, you always hear the guys, uh, and maybe this was a early 2000s, late 90s things, but, you know, it's truck stick. I mentioned it to Felder on one of the episodes a while back talking about Madison Hedgecock. I mean, there was, you know, you, you got a guy like that coming out of the backfield who wants to tackle him and he was fast and he was agile and he was nimble and, and all of the other Chris Berman adjectives that they wanted to give him before he started calling him Natron means business. Uh, but means finished with 128 yards and a touchdown, which was most of the offense that, that North Carolina would have that day with an exception of the big Bucky Brooks touchdown which if, uh, if our listeners are going back and seeing that, took some amazing concentration because he lost his sight of the ball before it hit him in the chest, and the ball was a little bit underthrown. So uh, th- that, that uh, Bucky Brooks touched, or near touchdown was a really big play too. All right, guys, getting close towards the finish line here. I like to call this kind of my Dr. Phil in the feelings part. Trey, I'll hit you first. What did this game make you feel rewatching it? Nerves. And it's funny when you know the outcome – yet you still watch it and get nervous. And I did all over again. The second half, it was the momentum swings. You go in the first half, Mississippi State dominates. You get to the second half, and there's a Carolina touchdown, a blocked punt, a fumbled punt, another blocked punt. Baskerville, the 45-yard interception for touchdown, which, which winds up being the winning score. 
the end of the game, Mississippi State's driving down the field with a chance to win this thing. They're inside the 30-yard line. It was such an emotional game, up and down, back and forth, each team with a chance to put this one away. Carolina winning a game where they only scored one offensive touchdown. It was nerves. I was nervous all over again. I think other emotions were seeing faces. You mentioned this early in the podcast. You mentioned Tommy Thigpen, who's you know linebackers coach now at mm-hmm. uh, Carolina and, and defensive assistant defensive coordinator. You mentioned Rick Steinbacher, who's in the AD department. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Corey Holiday, who's in the department. Those guys were all on that team, and mm-hmm. and I had the the fortune to be in the locker room with those guys and and they were just as good off the field as they were on and that's why they're still in the positions they are and I, I looked at that game and I you know you know them and they're still friends but looking back and seeing the impact they had and the impact they have today it was a lot what I felt was a lot of pride and a lot of appreciation and I even heard a term watch that they were bragging about Tommy Thigpen on the broadcast and they said he was a playboy preseason all-american and I went those were the days. <laughs> I forgot that was a thing. That was for a while. You're <laughs> I right. I do remember it. But it was, it was nervousness. It was pride. It brought back to me what it was to just be like Buck, Buck said at the very beginning, to simply be a Carolina football fan. I had grown up that way with my dad having played there. I had the, you know, was in the locker room. And then you get out and you kind of become a fan again. So it took me back there. It was almost taking you back to a little bit of a childlike mm-hmm. feeling. And the last thing I'll mention before I turn it over to Buck, because I know he's got some gems for you. One of the other things I thought about was the uniform. <laughs> I looked at it, and it was not there was not a uniform thread on inside Carolina, I assume, in 1993 <laughs> or anything like that. But the uniform was blue, blue, white. Yes. And it was gorgeous, and I thought as soon as they ran out on the field, now they fit a little different back then a little bit. than they do today, but, man, they were just as beautiful back then as they are today. Gorgeous. Two things I got to throw out were screened on numbers and, and names, yeah. <laughs> and I, I could not stand, and, and I'm going to take Buck's mantra here of, of get off my lawn, but that the shoulder patch, like the one the, – the bowl patch being on one shoulder – no, I can yeah. do without that. You, I don't take that elsewhere. No, thank you. But what was a, a great wrap up, Trey, by the way, you're talking about seeing this as, and as a kid, that's what this show is about. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate you putting that in such a nice package for us. But what was, what were your feelings rewatching this? Talk to us, kind of open up with us. Let us know what, what the deepest, darkest, most uh, vulnerable and emotive side of Buck Sanders was seeing that, seeing this game. As I started out saying about how nervous I was watching this game, and uh, you know, in the in the first half, that you kind of got through the first half, and then in the second half, it became a game. And but the score was so close that one mistake here or there was going to make the difference. And it seemed like there for a while um, they traded mistakes. You know. It, uh, you know, the, the touching the punt, um, you know, that gave them the ball at the 15. Yeah. Uh, you know, came after, you know, uh, some good stuff from North Carolina. And you're you wondering what's going to – who's going to make the last mistake in this game that's going to cost them the game. And uh, that nervous 
nerve wracking feeling of uh, wondering because the margin was so thin for both sides, uh, just kept you on the edge of the seat. It was none of this. Well, uh, they've got a two score lead. If they you know, kick here and, you know, maybe do an onside, maybe they can get within, you know, it was a one score game, uh, for much of the second half. And, you know, that made it so critical, you know, in every facet of the game. Um, so the, the nerve wracking feeling of it was what I felt like rewatching it. And the one thing I would like to see back, I don't come back. I don't know how you and uh, Trey feel about this, but I like the little Tar Heel stickers on the helmet. Yes. Yes. I agree uh, completely. Bring that going to be back. bigger, but I like them. Yeah. Uh, or even if, even if it's not the Tar Heel sticker, you can use the UNC logo, use something, but I love the recognition sticker. I'm with you. That's very old school. Yeah. I like that. Well, Ohio State well, still does it with the Buckeyes. So absolutely. Not, not that old school. Well, Clemson does it. Ohio State yep. does it. Um, Georgia does it. Like it's 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 pretty impressive too when you see some of these teams that have really good players by the end of the season, their whole helmet is is yeah. not up. I did like and Buck, you'll maybe you'll appreciate my attention to detail here. I like that Mike Thomas right on the side of his logo had one of his feet right in between the interlocking and C. Like he had one little foot sticker right in the blue part in the middle of the interlocking and C. I'm with you. Let's 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 start a petition. Hey. All of the listeners and viewers of, of this podcast uh, start a thread on the Inside Carolina Football Premium Message Board uh, about let's bring, let's let's get see if we can get Coach Brown uh, to bring back the the helmet stickers because if nothing else it'll give us something else to talk about right like that's why InsideCarolina.com is here. Um, boys, is there anything else y'all want to to make sure that we mention before we put a bow on this this first part of the? Episode nine of the throwback. Trey, I'll hit you first. Anything that we didn't talk about that you'd feel remiss if we didn't say? Uh, just a couple of things. I think, you know, when you talk about what you missed and the score and Carolina wins 21-17, the ending of the game is something that when I looked back, I didn't really remember um, or I didn't remember it vividly. I knew we won. I knew it was a close game. But to have Mississippi State with the ball, yeah. driving down the field, converting some big plays, you know, getting into the red zone and having a chance, quarterback plump gets hurt, hurts his shoulder, and winds up having to leave the game. So I think it was their punter, if I remember correctly, came in to play quarterback and through the last, what, three or four passes, ultimately an incomplete pass on fourth and one as they were out of timeouts and Carolina hung on to win. But the excitement of that. And then the other thing I would say is I started this off talking about what a program win it was for Coach Brown. And I mentioned I had talked to him about this game and what it led to in his mind. And if you look at how it ended and they win 21-17 and you're 9-3, you're Peach Bowl champs, well, the next year, the fall of 93, how do you open the season against Southern Cal? And they went out and just whipped Momentum. the Trojans. Mm -hmm. And it was a springboard – from the confidence, because it was a young team that was playing in Atlanta, in the Georgia Dome, which, by the way, I didn't realize that, realize that was the first time that had happened until I watched this again. It had always been held in Atlanta, Fulton County Stadium Fulton County. before then. But it was a springboard. It, it was where the program changed under Mac Brown was this win. And when they went out and beat Southern Cal, 
the next year. Because you got to remember, it was Mac Brown's first bowl win at Carolina. Yep. Carolina had not been in a bowl game since 1986. Yep. It was big in so many different ways, but it was biggest because of what it propelled them to the next year and beyond. Springboard is a great word, and I think, I think it's a great way to look at it. And that's what puts this game on our, our radars, right? That's what makes this game discussable. It makes it right to be a, a, a topic for this show. Buck, what's the one thing that we got to say before we get out of here about this, at least about this game? Well, I think it was important um, for them to, you know, as, as I started out saying, uh, I was just happy they got there. You know, it's been five years. Uh, you know, we're going to a bowl game. Uh, that's all good. Win or lose, who cares? You know, it's good reward for the seniors. But I, I thought it was both good and impressive that they won that game because, you know, in the early remarks, uh, they were talking about Mississippi State the year before had gotten to a bowl game for the first time in quite some time and that uh, Mississippi State in, in the previous year, they were just happy to be there. You know, they, they considered it a reward, you know, for a good season. But this particular year, they were much more focused and businesslike and intent on winning it. And, you know, to get past that point in, in the first bowl game to say, no, we're, we're, we're not here just to, you know, enjoy the, the process. You know, we're, we're not just here to enjoy the reward. We, we want to win. We want to kick your butt is what we would like to do. And, and, you know, I think that set a tone, uh, you know, going forward under Mac Brown, you know, that, um, you know, we're, we're going to show up, you know, we're, we're going to, things might not ultimately go our way that day, but we're in it to win it. You know, we're, we're not here for some other reason besides that. So um, I, I thought that was an impressive thing to me looking back on it. I'm just thankful we did. I'm just thankful we got through the whole thing without mentioning cowbells that the Mississippi State crowd has. Flanga, <laughs> flanga. Well, you know, because it was loud. You, you know, usually you ask about the controversial play. Uh, if there's any controversy, well, the controversy in this game to me, I was going to answer the question this way: that um, the cowbells had been banned in the, in the SEC. Yes, sir. In the SEC, they no, you can't use a cowboy a cowbell anymore. Uh, but the Peach Bowl said, "Sure, bring your 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 cowbells." I mean, come on, man. You know, <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's that's some. Uh, I I don't want to say it's home cooking for the SEC team, but that's definitely a that's definitely a, a strong marketing play by the Peach Bowl folks to to allow that to happen. I'm glad you mentioned that because I. I wouldn't have I, I wouldn't have considered it a controversy, but it's absolutely flies in the face of if your conference says you can't do it. Yeah, the fact that the bowl was like, oh sure, all of Starkville, bring your loud noisemakers into a dome stadium. Sure, I don't think that'll yeah. give you any sort of home field advantage whatsoever. Great show, fellas. I appreciate this. And Buck, I want to kind of piggyback the last thing you said. There is a strong amount of similarity and parallel into the feeling of the way North Carolina came out of this Peach Bowl win 
21 to 17 over Mississippi State as what we're feeling right now seeing the North Carolina team under Mac Brown in this phase, whether you're analyzing it from how the fans are responding or how the team is responding and kind of what uh, attitude they're taking and showing as a collective on the field. So I think that's a, that's a great segue. I think it puts a nice little bow on why this show, why we talked about this game on the show. So fellas, I appreciate the time. That'll do it for the first part of this episode nine of the throwback uh, on behalf of Playboy All-Americans, Trey Edge and Buck Sanders, I would say thank you guys for joining us. To our listeners and viewers, stick around. Uh, We're going to have our post-game interview coming up right after this. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this game and find out a little more detail from somebody who was taking snaps and, and making a big deal on the Peach Bowl in, in January of 93. But stick around until after the break, and we'll talk more then. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. What's up, y'all? This is four-time NBA champ Andre Iguodala. Yo, and this is his best friend, the Ohio State legend, Evan Marcel Turner I. Every Wednesday, we drop a new episode on our show, Point Four. We're talking basketball, business, and all the culture in between. From locker room stories to some basketball analysis from those who've been in the game. Now, it is a do-bet. Do average 29 and 11. God, shit. What'd it take to be an all-star? A win. Subscribe to Point Four, the podcast, so you don't miss a thing. All right, welcome back. Thank you all for sticking around. For those of you who are joining us on YouTube, we appreciate it. Uh, and for those of you who are listening, thanks for sticking around after the break. Right now, as we always do, I like to call this the post game. Uh, this is the part of the throwback where we actually talk to somebody who had a meaningful impact in the game that we just reviewed. And listen, I had a chance for this one to bring in a guy that was not only a Carolina alum, but also a Southview High School alum which y'all know I'm going to crib anytime I get a chance to. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to introduce you. He was a freshman on the 92 team that went to the Peach Bowl. Um, he was at Carolina from 92 to 95. He was an absolute freakish streak fast of an athlete on the Southview High School team that won the 1991 State 4A championship. Uh, his records right now at UNC as a specialist still stand. He's the fourth best overall kick returner with 21, uh, 2,120 yards in his career and fifth best uh, punt return average in his career of 27.5 yards. And just last year, the man was inducted into the Fayetteville Sports Club Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, a Southview Tiger at heart, a Carolina Tar Heel by blood, Marcus Wall. Marcus, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great, man. I tell you what, with that introduction, <laughs> I don't know if it can get any better. I might have to send you a check for that. Hey, look, I, I, will, I will accept and gladly cash any of those. But yeah, like, I, like I told you, man, I, I got a chance to bring in somebody from, from, from my alma mater in here. You know I'm yeah. going to do it. So this is, this is a win-win for me. Right? Yeah, and I think that, uh, I think that our, it's, this is going to carry over into a great conversation to our, our listeners and our viewers. So let's get right to it. You walk onto campus in 1992 – and all of a sudden, you guys are going to the Peach Bowl in your freshman year. How, do, how does that hit you as a wide-eyed 
you know, again, highly touted freshman coming out of Southview, but how did it hit you walking on to, you know, not walking on, but walking into Carolina, having the season you guys did, and then, you know, playing in a, a big bowl game against an SEC team? Um, first, you know, excuse the Santa Claus look I got going on because <laughs> A lot of the uh, seniors at that point would tell you this is probably how I walked in campus looking. They was like, you look so old when you came here. <laughs> um, but, man, it was, it was an experience of a lifetime. I would not trade it for anything in the world, uh, just the camaraderie of our team. And, you know, to go from what was the bottom dweller to, mm -hmm. you know, a, a team that's going to a bowl game. And for some years, I don't even remember how long it had been. But it was just, you know, fantastic. I don't know if it could have been better for, you know, a freshman to come in and, you know, experience that. I feel like it was about since 86, but I don't have that in front of me. So if I'm wrong, I'm sure our listeners will let me know. But, you know, for a guy to have that kind of stage, I mean, you're taking the kickoff back, right? So, like, you're, you're back there all, all by your lonesome as a freshman on the biggest stage you could have imagined. How were the nerves? The thing about it is when, you, when you're out there, there are no nerves. You get the butterflies when, you know, you're walking out the tunnel. But outside of that, when the, when they, the whistle blows, the ball is kicked off, it's, it, they're all gone. It's none of that matters. Take us through your game prep and then, like you mentioned, coming out of the tunnel as a freshman uh, on a team that was starting to see some real success. Talk to us about how Marcus felt as a as, – and at that point, you've already had your, your, your year behind you, so you weren't really a, a freshman – uh, right with air quotes around it but what, what were you feeling talk to us about your game prep you know what you guys went through that whole week leading up to the peach bowl um you know it it was actually fun it was more fun at that point i think uh coach brown and the staff did a great job of making it fun there was no pressure involved the pressure had already been lifted because we made it to a bowl game we were playing against an sec team it wasn't you know it wasn't a build up of pressure put on us but I have to give you know major kudos to uh the seniors in you know our room the receivers room because they did a great job of just relieving the pressure from us like myself I didn't I didn't really have any pressure it was just you do what you do we'll make everything else happen you know so it was I didn't have much pressure at all to answer your question which of those upperclassmen do you feel like prepared you the most that season Oh, man. I, you know, you, you have the Corey Holidays who he's just a straight line guy. He's going to be he's going to have the ins and outs of it. He knows it. Um, then you have your Randall Feltons, who he's he's a different than Corey, total polar opposite, um, who is very funny, very witty. And, you know, just one of those guys who made it fun, but was all about being prepared and winning too. Hmm. You had Julius Reese's who, you know, that's probably one of the most freakish athletes that I've ever been around as far as a receiver is uh, concerned. Um, then you had Bucky Brooks there. Like it, the room was loaded. It was really, really loaded with guys who uh, helped each other and fought for each other out on the field. So it was, it was pretty easy for me. So you guys are down 14, nothing to half. Uh, Mississippi State had been kind of vanilla. I mean, their their first drive was pretty efficient, but they hadn't done anything that really looked like they were going to blow you guys off the field. 
What was right. Coach Brown's message at halftime, if, if, if you remember any of the insight that he may have given you guys or how he approached it? I don't even remember the message. Probably because, like, I was just focused on making sure I did my job. You know, whatever responsibility I was given at that moment, just to make sure that I did my job. So I'm sure he was just saying, settle down, you know, because normally he's just that upbeat guy. He's just straightforward. Listen, guys, this is where we're at at it. He'll tell you the, the real with it, and then, you know, he'll give us the boost to go. So I don't remember specifically, but if I had to bet, he would just say, hey, we're going to be fine. Settle down. We've already took their best shot. Let's go give them ours. Yeah. I think one of the things about this game was, and obviously you couldn't tell, I don't know, maybe you could tell the future at that time, but obviously, you know, this was the beginning and this win, what we talked about earlier in the earlier part of the show was this was the springboard for Mac Brown edition 1.0 at Carolina. And right. it would lead you guys and through, especially through the rest of your career through some really good successes and really building a culture. What can you share with us about that? And did you know, at that time that you guys were a part of really building something special at UNC? I would say yes, because whenever I was, you know, being recruited there, like Carolina really, when I first started the whole recruiting process, wasn't even on my radar. But then, you know, just being recruited by them, uh, Terry Lewis was who started the recruitment for me. And once I got to campus and got an opportunity to meet the team, it was just phenomenal it was truly a family atmosphere which reminded me of my high school team and that was the big thing like it was almost identical the guys bonded color didn't matter size didn't matter position didn't matter everybody was for everyone and it was just that atmosphere that brought me there everything was good until this day like that same family atmosphere we have so that that was it I, I could probably say that most importantly that was the thing that led me to believe that everything would be fine at Carolina. What was your lasting memory of this Peach Bowl win? Well, I have two, actually. Let's hear them both. Uh, the lasting memory was obviously, you know, Natron's major success in running the ball and carrying us um, through. And Mississippi State was actually intimidated by him throughout the week. <laughs> Like, really, it was it was crazy, crazy, because, like, they would maybe talk junk to me, but they wouldn't say a word to him. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get you. And then he'll be right there, and it's like, wait a minute. You ain't going to say nothing to him? <laughs> you know? so, I can't say I blame him, Marcus. Right. I agree. <laughs> I agree. So um, that was one thing. And then the other thing was I – I was blocking and a punt hit me in the game mm -hmm. and Randall Felton was the returner. So, you know, obviously everybody has a call whenever the ball's in the air, if it's falling short, you holler, Peter, everybody runs out the way, get away from right. it, get away. Right. So the ball hits me and we're going off the field. I'm like, yo, did you um call Peter? He was like, no, nah, don't worry about it. It's my bad. Cool. Right. So when I get to the sideline, coach comes, <laughs> you got to get out of the way. You got to get out of the way. So I look at him and he says, I called Peter and walked to the side. <laughs> and I just was like, what? We get, then I go sit down beside him. He was like, no, hey, 
that's part of the game. You're going to be all right. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Just threw the freshman under the bus, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's brutal. But, again, it's, I guess that's, that's the way the people pull rank inside of a college locker room at that point in time. For sure. That's yeah. for sure. And yeah. not a word has ever been said about it. So, you know, <laughs> hey. we laugh about it when we see each other. Until now. That's uh, right. Mr. Felton, if you hear this, uh, I had nothing to do with the staging of these comments, <laughs> but I will vouch for their authenticity. Um, <laughs> you mentioned Natron Means, all right? Right. I, I made some jokes with the guys on the first part of the show. I think the announcer said Natron played that game at about 2.30. Be real. How, what was his play and weight when you guys started the game on January the 2nd, 19, uh, 1993? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't put him on a scale. But I know, <laughs> if, he, I know if they said 2.30, it was probably a favorable scale. I mean – Look, you play. You were actually a, an amazing running back in high school, so you know about being able to move and shift and and, and change direction and kind of get a guy out of out of his pants when he's when he's standing there waiting on you. Compare right. compare what you know about being a running back to a guy like Natron. Natron was amazing, man. Listen, I remember um, playing in my first game, actually playing receiver and getting a chance like to block mm -hmm. and. I know he's coming my, my way because the play is called to come to my side and I'm blocking and I hear, uh-oh, got him. <laughs> and, like, it's him talking as he's playing. <laughs> like, he's done juke somebody out the way and he's talking. That's next level. Yes, yes, amazing. Um, and then just, you know, like, Natron, was, he was just truly amazing. He was, he was a back who could do it all. He was a big guy. He was a fun guy. He was a great guy to be around. Uh, and, you know, just, again, part of that family atmosphere that Coach Brown helped create. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing so much with us about this, this specific game. And Is there anything else about this game or about your career that you want to leave our, our listeners and our viewers with before we, before we shut it down for tonight? My thing would be this. Uh, all kids and parents who are involved in recruiting and you know choosing schools I wouldn't look for fame I would look for family because football ends one day and if you don't have a family that can gather you around and be able to talk about the experiences when you go through the highs and lows as athletes do then you're really out there by yourself and I can say um, for us guys at Carolina who've been there we're here for each other you know, even to this day, and what, it was 50 billion years ago that I played, but I still have ties with those guys. I still have, you know, true family bonds, and it's been great. Even though everybody has their own families, everybody's doing their own things, we always at some point seem to get up, get together. We're always, you know, on in the group chat, we're doing things. So, you know, we, we just try to make sure we look out for each other, and, it, and it's been great. And I'm sure that Coach Brown coming back has really, really kind of put a, another level of, of heat under that to kind of get that back going. Hey, I, listen, Marcus, I hope that I get to see you at some games in Keenan this fall. I hope we have football. I hope that, you know, everybody can stay healthy. And I, I hope to catch up with you uh, at Keenan Stadium sometime this fall. But we're going to put a bow on this episode of The Throwback. I want to give a big shout-out to Southview Tiger Crib and uh, Carolina Tar Heel. Marcus Wall, I also want to give a shout-out to our earlier guests, Buck Sanders and Trey Edge. Uh, shout-out to John Siegley producing it and handling all the, the beautiful work to make this final production what it is. I uh, also want to thank Johnny T-Shirt, johnnytshirt.com, for sponsoring us. 
hit them up for your gear. Father's Day is coming up. They can take care of you and get it to you by Father's Day. Uh, but guys, I, I really appreciate it. Appreciate everybody listening. Hit us with a review or, or a rating on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you pick up this podcast. But yeah, for Marcus Wall, I'm Joey Powell. Thank you guys for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. All right. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to another podcast from InsideCarolina.com. Brought to you by T-Shirt.com. Where to go for your next Tar Heel gear purchase.